So today, my intention is to conclude our time together in chapter 14. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading, hearing, and receiving by God's grace, Holy Scripture. Moses writes, as he was born along by the Holy Spirit, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The 19th century Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde had a penchant for facetiousness. If you've ever read any of the quotes by Wilde, well, he once commented in the following manner, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I am old, I know that it is. We are at a place in Deuteronomy in which God is highlighting several ways the life and worship practices of his people, the people of Israel as they're entering the land of Canaan, ought to be distinguished from the inhabitants of Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 through 21, as I mentioned, if you're with us a couple of weeks ago, we observed that God's people were to be distinct in the way they mourned for the dead, that is, in the way they grieved over death, and they were to be distinct in the way they ate. Their diet was to reflect a distinction between them as God's people and others who were not God's people, inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Well, this week, we're going to continue this, this theme, as it were, and this emphasis throughout Deuteronomy, and this will continue for much of the rest of Deuteronomy. This week, we will focus our time looking at a text in which God instructs his people to be distinct in the way they give. And that's what God is doing consistently in this section of Scripture. We're going to see that. The inhabitants of Canaan are doing one thing. You're going to do something differently. People ought to be able to tell a difference between you 
as God's people and those who are not God's people. So if you're taking notes this morning, we are going to unpack this text in particular in two stages. And we've used this outline, as it were, this homiletical outline, I think at least one time in Deuteronomy, perhaps a couple of times. I find it helpful and useful primarily so that we're learning how to read Scripture Christianly. Okay, so here's the outline I propose to you this morning as we walk through the text. If you're taking notes, first, we will examine what we are calling giving then. You might prefer giving back then. We're going to look at the ways God instructed the people of Israel to give tithes in Deuteronomy 14 in particular, and another passage, a couple of passages perhaps. The ways in which their giving was to distinguish them from the inhabitants of Canaan. How were God's people back then as they entered the land of Canaan? How were they to give to God and to his people? And then secondly, secondly, after we look together at giving then or giving back then, we're going to look together at giving now. Giving now as Christians. How might we interpret and apply Deuteronomy 14 verses 22 to 29? And don't miss this. Through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the inauguration and the beginning of the new covenant. How are we to interpret these words as instruction for us as followers of Jesus Christ, in our case, in the 21st century, right here in Powell, Tennessee at First Baptist Powell, okay? So giving then and then giving now. And just a sneak peek, I'll tell you now as we're beginning this. And this is perhaps what happens when you have an an additional week. You know, for many, they work ahead. For me, I just work deeper, Perhaps I don't plan well, I don't know. But this originally was one sermon. You just need to expect this moving forward, okay? That way you just know and you anticipate what in fact will be the case. Uh, It is now a two-part sermon series. We'll see what happens between now and next Lord's Day. It may become a three-part sermon series. I don't think so, but I do want to this morning unpack the text, do giving then, giving now, But you're going to leave here, I think, dissatisfied. (laughs) Just know that that is a homiletical tool, right? Any of you fish? That's bait for next week, all right? Um, Next Lord's Day, what we're going to do is we're going to revisit this more broadly. And not so much in Deuteronomy 14, we're going to look probably primarily at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And we're going to look at giving Christianly. What does it look like for us to give Christianly? Because some things have changed in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. But we'll, we'll introduce that this morning, leave you incredibly dissatisfied as you walk out this morning so that perhaps we'll satisfy you next Lord's Day uh, with an additional sermon. Amen? Okay, well, that's our roadmap. I hope that encourages you. Let's begin by looking together at giving then. Now, remember the context, and we're going to do this briefly. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 14. This is the context. We've said it once, but we're going to say it more explicitly now in these verses. Chapter 14, 1 and 2 are the verses. You are sons of the Lord your God. Don't miss that. That's the context. And he goes on to talk about ways in which they should not mourn. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, but then continue to look, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
And we've said this already. We're going to say it again because I don't want to lose sight of the context. All of the instructions we find in this section of Deuteronomy are predicated on the reality that the people of Israel actually are distinguished from all other peoples on the face of the earth. They are, in the language of the text, set apart and selected sons of God. They are set apart and selected sons of God. And so when God instructs Israel in the text to give a particular percentage of their crops and so forth, their livestock, to give a particular percentage at particular times for particular reasons, he is instructing his sons and daughters. That's what this is. This is a household conversation, a family conversation. So how does God exhort Israel to give as his sons? Very simply, summarize it in this way, and then we'll unpack it. Very simply, Israel was to give tithes. Tithes. Or if you like the verb, they were to tithe, which, by the way, the verb is used in the text. Now, this this word has carried over into English, and it's become commonplace now. But the word itself, tithe, it's some form of ashar, or esher, depending on the particular word we're talking about. It just means to give a tenth, or 10% of something. And so, in the text, we could actually translate this, you shall surely give 10%, or you shall surely give a tenth. That's all the word means. So anytime, by the way, in your English translations, you see this word tithe, that's all the word means actually in the Hebrew text and oftentimes as well in the Greek text as we read the Greek Old Testament translation, the Septuagint. It also may serve you to know this, and we're doing a little bit of background here. It may serve you to know that there has been much ink spilt over the issue of tithing. There's a pun there somewhere, isn't there? So much discussion regarding the nature of tithing and the number of tithes in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you my position in just a moment. So much discussion regarding the ongoing relevance of tithing, actually, for the follower of Jesus Christ. How is it that this applies to the follower of Jesus Christ? We're going to do that together again, as I mentioned a moment ago. This is one of those issues, I think, that provides opportunity for us to remember that there are items within Christianity about which we may disagree and still enjoy fellowship. I hope you know that. Um, this is something that I like to do in sermons, and it's something that I love to do, actually, as a, as a pastor. And the Word of God does this for us, and church history helps us do this well as we're reading through Scripture. Scripture speaks with perfect clarity on the things that matter most. Perfect clarity. You know, you got to work really hard to mess some things up. There are other issues, however, concerning which Scripture speaks with less clarity. In fact, so many of our confessions historically, Second London Baptist Confession, for example, which we have a great deal of similarity there, actually speaks to this very issue. Some Scriptures are clearer than others. Now, by the way, did you know the Bible actually tells us that? Peter commenting on the Apostle Paul's writings in 2 Peter. You know what he says? I love this. We said this even this morning in our Membership Matters class, if you were, some of you were in there. The Apostle Peter actually says, concerning the Apostle Paul, that he's writing Scripture, he uses the same term, the same epithet for the Apostle Paul's writings as he does concerning all Scripture. 
And he says, in these things, the Apostle Paul has written some things that are difficult to understand. And some of you say, amen. The Apostle Peter had, had difficulty understanding some of what the Apostle Paul was talking about. And so it's okay. In fact, it's biblical to say that there are portions of Scripture that are less clear than other portions and yet not compromise that wonderful Protestant doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. That is, that Scripture is perfectly clear on those things that are essential for our salvation and for our obedience before God. And so there's, there is disagreement on this very issue as we move forward. So know that I reserve the right, which me, this is what this means, I reserve the right to change my opinion someday. Okay? And some of you, when I, if I ever do change my opinion on this issue, some of you will say, well, it's about time. Others of you will think I've apostatized. It just depends on where you stand on this issue. All right? So all of that to just preface this conversation, I hope you're able to have these kinds of interactions around proper interpretation of the word of God in a way that's charitable and humble and in a way that highlights the things that matter most and the things about which we do agree as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, all that to say, notice that in Deuteronomy 14, 22 and following, this is my understanding, there appear to be two different tithes, not just one. Two different tithes. There is what some have called the festival tithe, beginning in verse 22, and carrying perhaps through verse 27, perhaps through verse 26, depending on how you divide it. Verse 27 appears to be a kind of transition verse. So there's a festival tithe on the one hand, and then there's the charity tithe on the other hand. And the charity tithe is found in verses 28 and 29. And by the way, I have borrowed these titles from others. There is one in particular who actually wrote his doctoral dissertation at Southeastern. His name is David Curteau, and he's written at length on the issue of tithing. And I tend to agree with a lot of what he's, a lot of what he's written. So notice with me a few differences between these two tithes. First of all, the festival tithe is an annual tithe while the charity tithe is given once every three years. You see that? So look at verse 22. Verse 22 concerning the festival tithe. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field. How often? Year by year. That's every year. This is a tithe you are to give every single year. Concerning the charity tithe, however, we find in verse 28... At the end of every, what? Three years. You shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. Second, I want you to notice that the festival tithe, that is the first tithe Moses addresses here, is to be consumed in large part by the worshiper and his family. While the charity tithe is given to others. In particular, those in need, orphans and sojourners, even the Levites, widows. So look with me at verse 23, part B. The second part of verse 23 says, concerning the festival tithe, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. So this was a tithe that you were going to eat of, the festival tithe that is. In this particular case, you know, the worshiper could sell, sell their, their tithe, their 10%, so that it was easier to travel with it easier to travel with currency than it was with grain, livestock, so forth. 
and could come and buy what you needed, and then you were to eat the tithe. This is the festival tithe. They are oftentimes in Jerusalem and in other locations. However, concerning the charity tithe, verse 29 indicates, this is a tithe that was to be eaten by the Levites and the sojourners and the orphans and the widows. And so there appears to be a distinction between these two tithes. Let me mention one more thing to you. The festival tithe is observed where the tabernacle is located. The charity tithe is observed in all the towns throughout Israel. Notice verse 23. We are told regarding the festival tithe, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose. Now that language we have seen before back in chapter 12 concerning the resting place for the tabernacle. This is language that is used throughout Deuteronomy for the place where God will finally choose to cause his tabernacle to come to rest. And then eventually the place where the temple was to be constructed. And so there was this centralized place where God actually granted his manifest presence in a unique way. And this was the place where you were to bring, as it were, the festival tithe, a single location, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, as verse 23 goes on to say. In fact, as I mentioned, verses 24, 25, and 26 talks about selling what you had, binding it up, packing it up, and then traveling. Why are they traveling? Well, they're traveling because some of them live a far distance, or they will live a far distance from the place God would choose where his tabernacle would finally come to rest. So that's the festival tithe. But this is quite different from what we find concerning the charity tithe in verse 28. In verse 28, the charity tithe is apparently to be stored within the various towns throughout Israel. And so because of these differences, and perhaps even more, because of these differences, I conclude, and many others have concluded, that these actually are two different tithes. Complementary in some ways, both of them 10%. One of them, the festival tithe, is 10% every year. The charity tithe is 10% every three years. So what is that? 3.3333333333333 and so forth, percent, every year. Now, in addition to these, and we're going to briefly step away from Deuteronomy 14 because I want to give you a broader understanding of this concept of tithing in the Old Testament. In addition to the festival tithe and the charity tithe, you have what some scholars have called the Levitical tithe. While the Levites benefited from the charity tithe, they weren't the only ones benefiting from it. Those who benefited from the charity tithe were also the sojourners and the orphans and the widows. In fact, those appear to be the primary recipients of the charity tithe. But the Levitical tithe was something that was granted specifically to the people from the tribe of Levi. And we find instruction concerning this tithe in Numbers 18, verse 21 and 24. And the text reads, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Now, what's the tent of meeting? What is the tent of meeting? The tabernacle. Yeah, the tabernacle. 
And so the Levites are serving in the tent of meeting and God's saying here that I'm taking care of them. The Levitical tithe is granted specifically to them. And then in verse 24, for the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So the Levites were unique in this respect. If you recall, as they're moving into the land of Canaan, now we're talking about tithing back then, giving back then, as they move into the land of Canaan, they alone out of the tribes didn't receive an inheritance in the land. They didn't receive a portion of the land, not technically. What they received, of course, elsewhere the Lord actually makes the comment that they received him, he was their inheritance. But the Lord is merciful and kind and gracious and makes provisions for the Levites. How are they to provide for themselves? Well, they are to provide for themselves primarily in serving the Lord on behalf of Israel and receiving the Levitical tithe, which appears to be an annual tithe. So what does that mean? That means that there are potentially three tithes, three common tithes throughout the Old Testament. Now, Again, let me, let me highlight this. There are disagreements on how to put all this together. Some of them see them all the same. I don't think that works. I don't think it works. There are too many dissimilarities regarding purpose. So, for example, the festival tithe, these were for the festivals that were to be observed annually. We know that throughout the rest of Deuteronomy. We know that elsewhere, even in Exodus, for example. We know that in Leviticus. These were annual festivals. If the festival tithe is the same as the charity tithe, did that mean that every three years we didn't observe the festivals? I don't think it works. I think that there are dissimilarities regarding purpose that demonstrate that there were, in fact, three different tithes. However, there are faithful brothers and sisters that don't quite see it that way. Let me give you a couple more reasons why this is how I interpret this. We're just laying some of the foundation for what we're going to be doing as we read this text Christianly. There are a couple of documents, or actually a few documents, I won't mention all of them to you, but one of them is a document known as Tobit, Jewish document. It appears that around the first century and, and just before, the Jews interpreted the Old Testament as teaching at least a couple of tithes, and in many cases, three tithes. And so Tobit chapter one, it's a document we have, Verses 6, 7, and 8, or thereabout. And Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he wrote a book called Antiquities. Josephus actually in book 4 talks about this. So Tobit and Josephus, not Christian sources explicitly, both of them demonstrate that it was common Jewish interpretation to read these texts as instructing three different tithes. So this isn't new. This is something that was commonly understood in Jewish circles. So what that means then, if this is accurate, if this is correct, what that means is as an Israelite, what you ended up giving on an annual basis is somewhere around and perhaps more than 20% of your income. And so the application this morning is going to be go and do likewise. 
That's a lot, right? 20% or more, probably more, probably closer to 25%, depending on how you sift through all of this. And if you consider all of the offerings and various other obligations throughout the Old Testament, some have estimated in between 30 and 50%. You know, they're all estimations. It's challenging. But it appears to be far more than 10%. While a tithe means 10%, there appears to be more than, or there appear to be more than a single tithe. There are multiple tithes. So back to Deuteronomy 14, where you have two of the primary tithes spoken about, the festival tithe and the charity tithe. Regarding the festival tithe, remember this. This was a tithe that empowered Israel to commune with the God who had rescued them through table fellowship. They were to eat in the presence of God. In fact, at times, by the way, if I could just be frank, at times, this was a kind of extravagant eating. I mean, you notice how the text read this. Buy whatever you want. In Scripture, this is an aside, and it's free. In Scripture, there is a time to fast. There is also a time to feast. It's terribly difficult to read through Scripture and not have a place for celebration. It's terribly difficult. You've got to virtually ignore large portions of the text. And so there were these appointed times where God called Israel to himself and said, come to me and we're going to feast or you're going to feast in my presence. You're going to leave with full bellies. I'm going to stuff you because I'm good. And I'm going to stuff your household. And you're going to leave knowing that I am the God who provides for you the God who has rescued you. I hope you have that category as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is doing something. Oh, I'm getting off now. But I'm off for a reason. I'll get back on. John 2, the first sign in John's gospel. What is it? Do you remember this? Water to wine. The wedding at Cana. Does Jesus produce just enough to give everybody a sip? Goodness, no. There are barrels of this stuff. What is he saying? He's saying all of those promises innate throughout the Old Testament that the Lord your God who has rescued you is a God of plenty. He's a God of eternal wealth. He's a God who grants eternal inheritance. They've all come to rest in fulfillment in my person and in my work. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the 4,000, is there any left? Every time there's excess. You see the pattern? In Christ, there is an understanding that we are feasting. We're feasting in a very real sense already. And yet, and yet, as he instructed us while he is away, there is a season of fasting. There's coming a day when Christ returns, when there'll be no more need to fast, when all will be feast. Well, that was an aside. But I think it relates to what we're talking about here concerning the festival tithe. Because the festival tithe highlighted that reality and that promise of a day that would come that would only ever be feasting. It would only ever be abundance, wealth. 
as we enjoy our inheritance in the presence of God in Christ when he returns. John MacArthur actually calls this a national potluck. And we're Baptists, and so we say amen. In fact, one of the most exciting things for me about COVID wrapping up in the Lord's kindness, whenever he so chooses, is eating together more frequently. There is a reason Christians have spent the time to eat together historically and biblically. So that's what this is, a national potluck. And then the charity tithe, again, we're in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 29. The charity tithe was given to provide for those less fortunate according to material gain. The Levites, the sojourners, orphans, the widows, they all received provision through this tithe. Okay, so in summary, let's summarize giving then. In summary, God instructed his people to give various tithes as they entered the land of Canaan to ensure their ongoing communion with him during times of festival and feast and their care and protection of the Levites and and the poor in their midst, okay? That's what's happening then. They are to give tithes, plural for a number of purposes as they're entering the land of Canaan. Now let's transition to giving now. What does all of this mean for us as Christians here at First Baptist Powell in the 21st century? And to ask this question within the context of Deuteronomy 14, we could say it like this. What does all of this mean for us to give as sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ? Well, some of you perhaps would already guess this. While I do very much appreciate and understand the sentiment and arguments in favor of tithing for the Christian that is giving a 10%, I do not believe Christians are, don't miss this, required to give a tenth of their income to the church or other ministries. Now, before you assume I've apostatized, hang with me, okay? Hang with me. Don't throw your Bibles at me. In order to properly interpret these texts, Deuteronomy 14, for example, in order to properly interpret these texts, I think what we need to do is ask a couple of questions. And we've asked one of them already, but we're going to revisit that one, and then we'll ask a second one. Here are the two questions that I think we need to ask. Anytime, by the way, we're reading of particular instructions in the Old Testament and asking the question, how does this, or how does God instruct us to live in light of this instruction? Two questions we need to ask. First, The question of purpose. Question of purpose. What was the purpose of these tithes in their immediate context? And we've answered this to a degree, but we're going to revisit this because it informs how this grows legs and walks in the life of the Christian today. What was the purpose? And the second question is one of fulfillment. So the question of purpose and the question of fulfillment. How did the coming of Christ fulfill and affect the application of these tithes. Church family, what you should not do, what you should not do is take a verse from the Old Testament and simply transplant it into the life of the Christian. And none of you do that consistently. None of us do. First of all, we can't We couldn't if we tried. But a very clear example of this is the issue of sacrifices. 
do you as a follower of Jesus Christ still sacrifice? Of course, the answer to that is, well, it depends on what you mean. Do you offer an animal sacrifice on the altar before the tabernacle? No. And yet you're sacrificing, aren't you? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You're offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? That means that that instruction, it doesn't become obsolete, but it gets interpreted through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the once and for all sacrifice, in such a way that we are giving of ourselves, body and soul, to serve the living God through Christ. So do the Christians or do Christians sacrifice? The answer to that is yes, but not in the same way that an Israelite sacrificed. You see, I'm going to suggest we do something like that with tithing. And we'll do some of that here the rest of our time together. And we will revisit this next Lord's Day. So first question, what was the purpose of these tithes? And we've said this, I want to highlight it again. The purpose of the festival tithe was to provide for the nation of Israel when they gathered in worship according to the command that God gave concerning festivals, concerning feasts, if you like, a kind of national potluck. That was the purpose. It was inextricably tethered to the festivals. And the three primary festivals, annual festivals in Israelite history. The purpose of the charity tithe was to provide for the poor as well as continue providing for the Levites who didn't have a land inheritance in the land of Canaan to continue to provide for the Levites among the people of Israel. But it's important to understand that this charity tithe was, as it were, a kind of provision for the theocracy of Israel. It was, in, it was tied to Israel as a nation state existing in the land of Canaan. And so they were, they were to give, as it were. You know, there was no government welfare. But in some sense, if you'll permit this parallel, in some sense, that's what this is. It's a God-ordained welfare approach. Of course, there's so much more to it than that. There's not a one-for-one correspondence that we have today. But it was giving in order to provide for those who were less fortunate in the nation-state of Israel. Those were the purposes. So now let's ask the second question. How did the coming of Christ fulfill and potentially alter the application of these tithes? It's my understanding, brothers and sisters, that tithing was, as I've mentioned, inextricably tethered to a few things. It was inseparable from the tabernacle and the temple, tabernacle and temple worship. It was inseparable from the Levitical priesthood. It was inseparable from Israel's existence and operation as a nation state. Now, there are some things that have remained the same since the coming of Jesus Christ. There are other things that have changed. We are no longer a largely Jewish people as God's people who gather a few times a year at a temple or at a tabernacle where we offer animal sacrifices and grain and fruit offerings through a particular lineage of priests. And you see, these tithes were all connected to those distinctives of Israel. John 2 Christ is our temple. John 1, Christ is our tabernacle. 
Hebrews 4, Christ is our priest. In fact, the book of Hebrews, Christ is our priest. And Christ, our priest, has offered the sacrifice of himself once and for all, Hebrews 7.27. There's no more need to offer animal sacrifices. We observe the festival. Paul actually uses this language in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. I love this. We observe the festival, but not in the same ways. According to the Apostle Paul, we observe the festivals when we offer up our lives in obedience to Christ. Isn't that fascinating? That's the language he uses. Let us observe the festival or the feast. Not with the old leaven, he says, but with the new leaven of sincerity and of truth. So you see these shadows. These shadows in the Old Testament find their substance in Jesus Christ, and then then they are expressed differently in the life of the Christian and the worship of the church. It's my understanding that tithing was tethered to these shadows. And if tithing was tethered to these shadows, then tithing itself finds its fulfillment in the giving of himself, Jesus Christ, and then gets expressed differently in the life of the Christian. Does this mean that Christians are not exhorted to give? And the answer to that, of course, is absolutely not. In fact, the New Testament is clear regarding the Christian's privilege to give to Christ and to give to the body of Christ, to give to the church in what is perhaps the most sustained New Testament passage concerning giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't miss this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what motivates the Christian in giving. It's the gospel. Though Christ was rich, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus Christ gave up the wealth of heavenly glory for the poverty of earthly suffering and death on a cross. And this same Jesus rose bodily from the dead on the third day, appeared to many, ascended, to the right hand of the Father where he prays for us and is someday coming back to this earth to judge the living and the dead. This is what motivates Christian giving. And and by the way, if you do not know this Jesus, so the issue of tithing and giving needs to be off the table for you. What you need to know is what God has given to rescue you. We plead with you this morning not to leave this place without embracing Jesus Christ in faith and treasure and surrender and finding your life in him. Finding your eternal wealth, your eternal inheritance 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Embrace him this morning, perhaps for the very first time. And if that's where you are, please stay after for a few moments and have a conversation with us. You can walk out of these doors and take a left. And on the right-hand side out there before you exit the building, there is a room called the Crossroads. And there will be a pastor in there who would love to have a conversation with you and pray with you and find out ways we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us as you've come to realize what Jesus Christ has given to rescue you out of sin, out of death, and out of hell. But that's what drives us as Christians moving forward. And so for those of you who know Jesus Christ, your giving is motivated by far more than tithing instructions. Don't miss that. So if someone were to ask you, why do you give to the church? It's not simply, well, because there are these tithing laws. No, I give to the church because Christ has given all to me and I'm eternally wealthy in him. That's why I give. I give because I'm motivated by the gospel. That though he was rich, he became poor so that I could, by his poverty, become rich. And so it's nothing for me to give out of my bank account to his people and in giving to his people to give to him. Might I suggest, because here's the fear. The fear is, at times, with the view that I espouse concerning tithing, the fear is, well, then, my word. Are you saying that Christians shouldn't give, aren't obligated to give? Might I suggest to you that when you are motivated by the reality of the gospel, you are not limited to 10%. But when you are motivated by the reality of the gospel, and I experience this sometimes. I wish I experienced it all the time. The day is coming when I will experience it all of the time with you. When we are motivated by the reality of the gospel, we're willing to give everything. Everything. In fact, this is the way the early Christians talked about tithing oftentimes. I was even reading this past week. I won't get into some of the details, but even in the second century, some of the authors concerning tithing will say things like this. They tithed. We give everything. Israel tithed. We give it all. Every bit of it. And you know, I, ha- I had a dear relationship. I still have a dear relationship with, with a family. But it's not as close as it once was because I no longer live there. But there's a dear family that I, that I cherish and I love. And if I mentioned their names, it, they would just be in fits. So I'm not going to do that to them. But I've known them for years, and I had the privilege of serving in the same church where they were members and where they served. And this family helped me see what it meant to give motivated by the gospel. It's a family that I have seen. I won't get into too much detail here, but I have seen them write checks that just it blew my mind. And I remember asking them questions, and I've been the recipient of of their giving at times. 
my family has been the recipient of their giving. And I remember asking them questions about this. And, and they would consistently say, if I said something like, oh, thank you so much for this. And they would, this is how they would respond. What do you mean? It's not ours. Why would we? It's not ours. We've been rescued by Christ. It's all his. It's simply been entrusted to us as stewards to decide how to give it. But it's all going to be given eventually. And so it's for us as stewards to just make the decision on how it's to be given, but it's all Christ's. And you see that, don't you? Early in Acts, Acts chapter 2, they held all things in common. You remember that language? Willing to sell everything and give it away. Why? Because they weren't bound, may I suggest, by a tithe. They were motivated by the gospel. I think, call me naive. I probably am at times. I think that a church that really understands this will be a far more generous church than a church that restricts itself to 10%. I think. There are parallels between the festival tithe, the charity tithe, and Christian giving. We're going to flesh out more of this next Lord's Day. I want to mention just a couple things to you, a couple of parallels. Paul makes a connection, for example. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 to 14, between an apostle being supported financially for his ministry and a priest being supported by the people of Israel. So there's some connection there. A leader in the church, a priest. Paul, of course, is not saying that a leader in the church is a priest. Again, don't transplant, but see it through the lens of Christ. Christ is our priest. I am not a priest any more than you are a priest. First Peter 2. Elsewhere in the New Testament, God instructs the church to offer financial gifts for those who labor to preach and teach Scripture. This is Galatians 6. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 talks about the elder who is worthy of double honor because he labors diligently to preach and teach scripture. I get the benefit of that from your generosity as senior pastor here at the church. And so do so many others. So there are parallels, okay? You see these parallels between the tithe and the purpose of those tithes and giving in Christ or giving Christianly. Moreover, the church is to be a people who care for the orphans, the widows, and others in need. Right? Galatians 2, verse 10, the apostle Paul says after he has a conversation with, with James and, and Cephas or Peter and John, pillars of the church, he says. He and Barnabas have a conversation with these apostles and, and they're sent. Paul says, look, they gave us the right hand of fellowship and we were sent out to minister the gospel to the Gentiles and they were ministering the gospel to the Jews and yet they told me, don't forget to remember the poor. Paul says, the very thing I was eager to do. It's always been in, in the DNA of the church. It was in the DNA of Israel because it's who God is. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you see these parallels, okay? I'm just giving a cursory summary of this. 
There are parallels. Don't misunderstand what I am suggesting. But I'm saying the thing blossoms in the gospel. No longer 10%. It's everything. Everything. Well, as I mentioned, we will revisit this next Lord's Day. I think we've said enough, but I do want to summarize or rather conclude with the words of Isaac Watts. He wasn't writing about giving financially, but I think he would not take issue with me applying it as such. Isaac Watts, in When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, listen to these words and consider the way in which they motivate you to give on account of the gospel. Isaac Watts wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest, what? Gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And then we'll jump to the end, okay? After meditating on the eternal value of the cross, Isaac Watts concludes in total surrender, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. That's it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my what church? My all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are eternally privileged. Having received the inheritance secured for us on account of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son. We're privileged as stewards of your word and the instructions found therein. We pray that you would teach us what it means to give as you have given to us. Such giving will know no boundaries. And forgive us when we withhold when we should give. I pray, Father, that these words will have been received as faithful words rooted and grounded in your word in Scripture as we all seek to learn what it looks like to live a life that brings glory to your name through Christ Jesus, your son. It's in his name and for his sake we pray these things and all God's people said, amen.